Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Horn Call Podcast. My name is James Bolden. I'm the publications editor for the International Horn Society and your host. Today, we flip things around a little bit. I get to interview Dr. Katie Beth McKinney, who is a classically trained horn player, educator, and researcher. Uh, She has her own podcast called Represent and a whole project based around underrepresented composers. She is a really fascinating person to talk to. We had a a wonderful time talking about all different kinds of things related to horn playing and teaching career stuff kind of big picture things um, where to get started if you're looking for uh, diverse uh, composer resources and uh, all kinds of great information for teachers and students so without further delay here's my conversation with Katie Beth McKinney As soon as I hit record, I thought of another question I should ask you. But do you go by Katie or Katie Beth or Katie Beth? Katie Beth. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I'm really excited to talk to you. Uh, do you want to give us kind of the thumbnail sketch? Uh, as I was mentioning earlier, uh, for anybody who might not know who you are, just give us a brief how you got where you are, what you're doing, the various activities that you're involved with. I would imagine most people might know you through your Represent Project and the podcast. Um, So, but maybe fill in some of those details for us, please. Sure. Um, So yeah, I am a horn player, obviously. And um, that is kind of how the whole thing got started. I um, was, I did my master's at Indiana University and then came down to Miami to do my doctorate. And during that time of programming my very first doctoral recital, I realized that I uh, had never played a work by a woman composer mm-hmm. in my whole career, which at that point, you know, was 15 years of music making. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll circle back around to my how I got into music, because that's a fun story. Sure. But, um, but yeah, so I uh, started collecting works on an Excel spreadsheet that I was interested in playing. And then word got around my horn studio that I had this document. And my friend Natalie was like, hey, can you send me that? And it went on from there. And she's like, you need to publish this. And here we are. So that's kind of my thing is I am um, a horn player who loves to research and to write and to teach. And so I um, have a horn studio down here in Miami where I work with um, students third grade, which is crazy, through um, I've got a couple university level students. And, uh, yeah, I write articles and, and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, I got into music because my mom's a musician. And okay. she's, a, she's a violist who will forever be disappointed that I did not choose a string instrument to stick with. <laughs> it's the same voice, though, in the orchestra. I mean, it's the alto oh, she, voice. So yeah. ex- exactly. She feels like um, at least I didn't choose, you know, because, you know, a violist, at least I didn't choose like the soprano violin equivalent. You know, right, I could have exactly. got trumpet or flute. Sorry, friends. But, you know, <laughs> so, and she started me on violin when I was itty bitty, itty bitty. And um, I hated it. <laughs> and went to sorry, and uh, went to cello, which I loved. I loved the cello, but I did not want to carry it around for the rest of my life, which mm-hmm. I stand by that decision. Um, so I went back to violin, still hated it. Uh, we tried piano, and for some reason, my left hand, which is funny because that's our our valve hand, mm-hmm. will not operate independently of my right hand. It's like I will do a chord. And that is the most I can commit to. So Mm -hmm. piano didn't work out either. And um, my band director in sixth grade, um, right when we were doing the instrument petting zoo, I guess it was fifth grade, was like, well, you know, what do you want to play? And I was like, I want to try the clarinet. 
could not make a sound on a read, not a single sound. Um, couldn't even squeak, nothing. So um, he started putting brass instruments in my hand and we tried trumpet and trombone and I could get some sounds out. And I was, I was like, the trombone looks kind of goofy. It's not not my vibe. So, uh, so he put a horn on, you know, in my hands and um, was like, okay, I want you to play these notes, do this, you know, fingering combination. And uh, first notes that came out were G, A, B, C. And they just popped right out and we're like, oh, okay, wow. you're going to be a horn player. So... <laughs> That's, yeah, that's really uh, cool. It was it was a neat little kismet moment. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and you're and, you're a pretty busy freelancer down there in the Miami area. Yes, I uh, play with the Palm Beach Symphony, Florida Grand Opera, Venice Symphony, a few other places down here. Sometimes the Boca Symphonia. Um, that's that's the thing about freelancing is you're with everybody and everywhere, and just try to keep mm-hmm. yourself as busy as possible. But yeah, is that a pretty uh, good environment down there for freelancing? It's an interesting environment. It's um, a right-to-work state, so there's not a lot of union protections. There's not a lot of um, – there. there's some union work, but it's mostly mm-hmm. on your own. So you have to be very aware of your relationship with contractors, your relationships with the conductors, and your section. Because, I mean, it's a small world music, so the, the moment something goes awry, everybody knows. So. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, great. Well, yeah, thanks, for, thanks for doing that. And so – one question I enjoy asking people is, so, you know, you started on horn and it sounded like you got off to a good start. And I assume you started taking private lessons at some point along the way. At, at what point was it like, okay, this is what I want to do for my career? Was there a like a light bulb moment or was it a series of moments that led you to that decision? It was absolutely a series of moments. Um, I because I was a rebellious middle schooler, like many of us were, I was dead set on not going into music for a long time. Because my my whole family, I come from generations of music teachers. Mm-hmm. My Two of my grandmothers, my aunt, another aunt, yeah, it goes way, way, way back. So I was like, I'm not going to be a music person. I'm going to go do something else. So I took um, ag classes in high school mm-hmm. so to become a veterinarian. I set my pants on fire learning how to weld during high school. It was a whole thing. Um, so it was a great time. And... Um, I got to be a junior in high school, and I was really starting to do well in the all-state circuit in Texas and, um, you know, really enjoying myself. And I said, well, you know, I really do like this. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe I'll try and, and give it a test. So I wound up um, double majoring in undergrad with history. I was like, I'll have a backup in case, mm-hmm. you know, I choose to not do something else. And, uh, yeah, I don't regret double majoring um, because I can write a really mean paper. It was very handy for when I got to my dissertation. Mm-hmm. But it definitely spread my attentions a little thinner than maybe they could have been. Because I was also working three jobs and in marching band and doing all that jazz that you have to do to put yourself through school. Mm-hmm. And um, actually, I wasn't in jazz, so I shouldn't use that one. <laughs> but um, <laughs> all that marching band. But um, yeah, so it really was... Uh, a series of, of events and it was applying for master's programs and getting into Indiana mm-hmm. where I was like, okay, maybe I've got a shot. And, um, it, it almost felt like every time I would take two steps forward, there was one step back. Um, I studied with Dale Clevenger while I was at Indiana and he, this is such a painful story, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Um, one of his methods for motivating students was to say something kind of cutting and see if it kicked your button to gear. Hmm. And um, because I'd worked so hard in my undergrad, I kind of, 
backtracked in my master's and was like, I'm going to have fun and goof off a little bit too much. Mm -hmm. And um, that lasted all of a semester before I regretted it immediately. But anyway, so one day he looked at me and in his Tennessee accent, you know, Dale um, goes, you know, it's okay if you only ever play in a community band. And I Mm. fell apart, (laughs) fell apart completely. I think he meant that to be a, Hey, go practice more. But what it said to me was, you should probably quit. And why are you here? So um, my journey after my master's, I took a year off and Mm -hmm. was like, I need to figure out if this is actually what's for me, if I have the potential to do this. And I didn't touch my horn for, I think it was four or five months. Um, Mm -hmm. I worked retail, you know, and um, paid the bills, did what I had to do. Right, right. And I got to that point where I was like, I really miss my horn. I mm-hmm. finally, you know, I got it. It was staring at me from its case, you know, and I was like, I got to pick <laughs> it back up. And uh, I was very lucky. I had a really cool boss. I was the manager of the store at this point, but my area sales lead guy, um, Dave, we love Dave. He would let me practice in the back room of the store in Bloomington. So oh, I wow. would be, oh, he was the best. So I would be there. Um, if I had to open the store, I'd get there at 8 a.m. and mm-hmm. practice for an hour, open the store at 930. On my lunch break, I'd eat a bag of microwave popcorn and then practice for 45 minutes. And then- mm-hmm you know, practice an hour afterwards. And, and customers would ask and be like, where's that music coming from? Is, do you have a record store next to it? And you'd be like, oh no, that's our, one of our managers. And she's back there doing French horn stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, Isn't that a yeah, funny compulsion we have that, you know, this hunk of metal is what does it for us. But no, it's, it's, I, I completely sympathize with that. I have heard stories of, you know, people who were like real estate agents to pay the bills and then they would practice in the open houses before anybody got there. So they have this huge space with nobody in it and they can just practice for a couple of hours before people start showing up. So. Oh, I love it. That's way better than practicing in my little, you know, apartment <laughs> office. So <laughs> if I, I have practiced in everything from my car to like a walk-in closet to, you know, that would be a oh, really yeah. cool Instagram. I'm sure that already exists and most of that stuff already <laughs> exists, but that'd be a really cool Instagram story is like people share their most, you know, weird or unconventional practice spaces. <laughs> oh, yeah. I practiced on a sailboat once. Um, oh, wow. My, that's cool. My grandparents had a sailboat on Lake Ontario up in New York, and um, we did a two-week sailing trip right out of my undergrad. And I was like, I'm not going to not take my horn. So I played in the middle of Lake Ontario. <laughs> it was. I think I only tried it once. After that, I was like, this is too hard. The boat's rocking. It's wild. But it was fun. <laughs> So, so you mentioned you're, you come from a long line of musicians and, mm-hmm. you know, you have a, a very distinguished uh, pedigree in terms of who you study with. Were there other influences along the way, uh, like where there people at IU, I assume, who were maybe a few years uh, ahead who were doing things that you were like, ooh, that's something I want to get into? Or were there other people, horn players or otherwise, that you looked up to that you wanted to sort of pattern things after? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I would be completely remiss if I didn't mention Heather Test, who was my mm. primary undergrad instructor. Mm-hmm. Um, she is so cool, first and of all. And this is a human being. Texas Christian University. T- TCU. Yeah, TCU. Yeah. Go Frogs. Um, so <laughs> uh, she does everything. Opera, orchestra, chamber music. She plays a polyphonic spree. Um, she was one of the first people I saw who was making a living by not just being one thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I say that, and my mom was the same way. She does violin, viola, bluegrass, fiddle, the whole nine yards. But mm-hmm. but from a horn perspective, Heather is just like finger in every pie kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, that's how I realized that's what I want my career to be. I 
I'm not a strictly orchestral person. I love chamber music. I love solo repertoire. I love stuff that's weird. Um, I got to record for Bad Bunny this year. You know, oh, that's like, cool. That's, yeah, like the, it's it, doing all this. You know, I played with the Who last year. It's like the the doing the the pop side of it is really really mm-hmm. fun too. And so um, she was a big big influence uh, on what I pictured my career looking like going forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I also was really into film music. That's kind of what clinched the horn for me as opposed to trying another instrument. Uh-huh. Um, Lord of the Rings was a big one for me. That was like foundational moment. Yep. And then also this um, weird recording that I picked up from our local bookstore in Kerrville, Texas, that probably no one's ever heard of called Hastings. Um, it is defunct now. And I got a, a recording of water music. And uh, for some okay. reason that was like another aha horn record i don't know why it was water music now i don't want to listen to it anymore because i've listened ad nauseum at this point but um (laughs) but at the time i was like this is this is cool this is what i want to do Mm -hmm. and um yeah so that would be another influence was uh was film and that one recording of water music and then that's um, almost film music in in terms of you know how ubiquitous it is oh absolutely and of course i studied with rick uh rick todd for my doctorate and Mm -hmm. so you know he's got that big la film history and that i knew that was going to be something i was interested in and um he's really mad at me because i traded in my con 8d for (laughs) not a con but it's fine you know not everybody out there is playing 8ds necessarily all the time either i mean i mean that's been the case for a long time i mean they play what they need to play to get the job done from what i understand well and if we all had the magic horn that he has sitting in his office which has been (laughs) um doctored and i think it was i i'm gonna get this wrong just gonna get hear this and get mad at me but i think it was vince's horn vince de rosa ah, and okay. um because he's got like 20 something horns in his sure. office in any given moment and they're all these jack caves horn and he's got uh-huh. um i think he's got gunther schuler's alex descant or something and he's got oh, all wow. this crazy stuff yeah okay. they're all on his website actually i put them up there but um so he's got the magic con 8d and that one is like the easiest horn to play i've ever played in my life wow beautiful so if if all of them played that way i'd probably still play on one but sure uh, Sure. Well, what was that like? If you don't mind me asking, what was that like studying with him? I imagine by that point, you know, you're beyond just sort of basics and fundamentals, although sometimes that happens at the doctoral level. But what what were lessons like with with Rick Todd? Um, I was really lucky. He let me kind of steer, for the most part, steer where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So we did actually do the the very first thing he does in almost everybody's lessons is you do the first Koprosh etude with all on the F side of the horn. Hey, Um, like Kendall Betts. It's nice. Oh, yes. It is absolutely a really nice um, wake-up call if your yeah. F-side is not as developed as it should be. Um, so we did do a lot of fundamentals because I had gotten so much musical education from Dale, but my hmm. technique was suffering. So that was the first year was kind of revamping all that. But after that, he let me um, – that was when I really started getting into the women-composed works, and he let me just go. Um, mm-hmm. I would bring in music he'd never heard of before, and uh, – you know, I, we just worked on it and he was like, okay, cool. And then, you know, I'd bring in like the Brahms horn trio, which he has endless thoughts about. And so we, mm-hmm. we, we struck a nice balance, but um, he is very much a proponent of making sure every um, part of your playing is as efficient as possible. Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time working on support and um, focusing on how you use your air strength versus speed kind of stuff. And um, mm-hmm. he's got a fun video series that I'm in back when I was playing much worse than I am now. And um, people can still go and watch it. And um, you can hear me do a really bad version of Till Oil and Spiegel because it was purposefully bad. The point was to like, you know, Uh make as many mistakes. Right. But I sit there and I'm like, I hope people don't think that's how I play. (laughs) 
<laughs> it's fine. Um, but so yeah, is this on? Is it on YouTube or? It's on. Oh, I think it's on Podia. You can go okay. and um, you like purchase a subscription, and he does um, promos. Oh, okay, and stuff got like it. That. Got and, it. And um, kind of like Denise's little series she's got. Mm-hmm. And stuff like that. Um, but yeah, so you can go find those and, and get a little taste of what it's like to study with Rick. He's um he's a, a hoot and a half, as we say in Texas. <laughs> Well, no, there's certainly lots of great players coming out of, of Miami and lots of great research to kind of on my end. I am like, OK, you know, what dissertations are out there and who's doing research on what and to, to lots of good stuff from there. So that's that's really mm-hmm. good to hear. Um, so d- tell me how the the project, the rep- as you mentioned, you know, your interest in it, but lots of people have lots of ideas about things. And it's it's rare sometimes that these ideas become as successful a project and a podcast and, you know, articles and things like you've got, how did, how did all that come to be? Oh, it was a, another series of funny happen happenstances, mm. circumstances. Um, I, like I said earlier, I really just was doing it for my own research and um, something I was interested in. And I am really, really lucky that while I was at Frost, I had this little circle of people who were so supportive. Mm. Um, Natalie, I mentioned, my friend Melanie's a bassoonist from Panama. She's doing all this really, really cool stuff. If anybody's interested in bassoon things, Melanie Ferrabone, go look her up. Um, and, you know, my friend Amber is another horn player. They were all like, you know, all of these things that you're doing, other people are going to be interested in. It's not just you. Mm-hmm. and Because, you know, I, it's very easy to say, oh, I think this thing is cool. But, you know, nobody else is talking about this. So why, <laughs> you know, why would I do anything with it? And this was, um, you know, it all started before COVID and before Black Lives Matter. And um, it was really percolating for those years prior to that. But mm-hmm. it was it was hitting the pandemic that I was like, you know, I've got this time. I might as well put this out there and see kind of you know, who else is interested. And I immediately got really, really great feedback. I saw traffic to my website increase by, I think it was 132% Mm -hmm. um, that very first couple of months. And I went, oh, other people care about this too. We should keep going. Mm -hmm. So um, now I'd I'd made the database. It was actually very simple to put together, more simple than I thought. Um, It's in a Google, uh, Google Sheets and Uh I have it hooked up to my website and it makes an auto table for me with a plugin. It's, It's nice and simple on the tech end. But um, I was like, where can I take this next? And I was like, well, the whole point is to bring people to music they wouldn't normally look for mm-hmm. um, or normally know. So what's the what's the next thing I can do to keep amplifying people's voices? And I was like, well, literally, that's a podcast. You know, it's, mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> the best yep. way to hear people's voices is through their voices. <laughs> so um, I, I started talking to composer friends of mine. And I was like, if you if I approached you to do this, would you be interested? And they were like, oh, yeah, that sounds great. And um, as I've learned, composers love talking about their music with mm-hmm. very few exceptions. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good way to get them going. So this has been a lot of fun. I've gotten to meet super cool people. Everybody I've spoken to has just been the kindest, most interesting people. Like they're, they're amazing. Um, and some of them have been horn players. Some of them have been completely not. Um, my very first guest was Michelle, uh, Michelle Stevelton at FSU. Mm-hmm. And she was so supportive and was like, I think this is a great idea. She's like, I can't believe you consider me a composer. And I'm like, you've got music that you've written yeah, absolutely. you are yeah. a composer yeah. um so that was fun to kind of you know help her hear that label applied to herself that was fun um but yeah and so now it's it's still expanding and i like you mentioned i write articles for the uh, horn society newsletter um and they're 
just little features, you know, a couple of paragraphs on, mm-hmm. on composers as well. And I try to use that space to focus on um, composers that I can't have on the pod. You know, maybe they're deceased or uh-huh. they're not interested in being interviewed. Um, one composer I'm going to feature uh, initially agreed to do the podcast and then found out there's a scam going around. So people should be aware of this. There's a scam going around where people are stealing voices from podcasts and using oh. the AI stuff. And so she got really nervous and was like, I don't really want to put my voice out there. I'm like, you know, that's fair. But um, so I called my mom that day and I was like, hey, mom, if anyone calls asking for gift cards using my voice, it's not me. Um, that is so, scary. Yeah, that's so scary. Yeah. Yeah, PSA. But basically, um, to, to actually answer your question, this it's all just been like kind of willpower and forcing things out, even when it's exhausting and using all my mm-hmm. spare time because I care about it so much. Mm-hmm. And um that's that's how this all kept going was just making it happen and it i'm giving myself more credit than i feel like i deserve because it's not like it's just been me it's been my my team of support people but it, it yeah it's just been taking an idea and saying hey does this sound cool and if one person says yes i'm like okay i'm gonna do it mm-hmm. so <laughs> that's that's really how it's been been moving along yeah a lot of this business and it is you know whatever you might think of it. I mean, you, it is a business in a lot of ways, higher ed or freelancing or podcasting or whatever. It A lot of it is just sticking to it. And, you know, of course, <clears throat> the way things turn out might not be the initial concept you had. I mean, you sometimes you have to change, change directions along the way. But yeah, the people that are successful are quite often those that just are kind of stubborn about it and just keep plowing ahead no matter what. Um, but no, your your website is awesome. The podcast is awesome. Definitely check it out. It's called Represent, and I'll put the the link to both the the podcast and your website in in the show notes. Um, so I want to turn. I guess let's let's get a little more detailed now. So let's say I'm a student or a teacher, what have you, and I'm like, okay, I'm turned on to this now. I realize that. For many, many generations, there's been so many great composers who just don't get their fair due. For whatever reason, they're overshadowed by those in the historical canon, whatever. But I'm interested now. I want to get into new repertoire. What are some good places to start? Because I get overwhelmed easily. Like I'm one of those people that like when I was a kid in school, first day of class, they're like, oh, you're going to have a project due at the end of the semester. And I start freaking out about it that day. Like, I'm like, oh, I have to finish <laughs> it now so I can turn it in. Uh, and sometimes that's to my benefit and sometimes that's to my detriment. But anyway, so me personally, I'd be like, oh my gosh, there's so many. Where do I even start? I mean, what difference is my little bit of program- programming going to make in the grand scheme of things? What what would be some good advice for performers or teachers, students? Where can they start? And what would be some good works that you might recommend to just kind of get people in, in the door, so to speak? Sure. Um, there's actually a few places you can start these days. What's been really cool is now there are a lot of resources if you're interested in performing underrepresented works besides my own. And I am all for, you know, getting as many of these out there. You know, you never know who's going to have music that you didn't find. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. so great. Um, in terms of not being overwhelmed by because there is a lot now. Um, I am a big proponent of just finding one piece that you like and seeing mm-hmm. where that leads you. For me, the piece that started all of this off was Margaret Brower's Sonata for Horn. It is beautiful, stunning, stunning music. And um, I it led down a rabbit hole and, and here we are. But um, there, there are some very approachable 
uh, composers who write amazing stuff. Margaret, um, Gina Gilley. Mm-hmm. Um, shout Andrew out to Gina, Field. my friend. Shout out to Gina. Oh, she's the best. She came on my podcast. So, 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 so nice. Um, a poor thing. I had to record her episode in my car because I <laughs> had rescheduled her four times and I felt so bad about it. And I was like, okay, I just got another gig. We're going to do this. I had my mic set up on my steering wheel. It was, it happened. <laughs> so. Well, I've listened to the episode. You would not know that. You okay, wouldn't I'm know glad listening to, know. to it. No, it comes really through just glad. fine. Yeah. Oh, well, I love her work. I've played a couple of them now, and they're all just they're challenging. They're not easy. You know, it's it's not entry-level mm-hmm. horn playing, but it is um very rewarding music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The payoff is really high. Um now something that I'm starting up as of yesterday actually now exists, but um I've got playlists going on YouTube and Spotify. Oh, nice. Nice. So you can go, and they are very much works in progress. They've only got, I think, 15, 20 works in them as of right now, but I'm going to be expanding them this week mm-hmm. um, so that you can just go start listening. And that's mm-hmm. that's the best place to start is just random, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, they're going to be organized by composer name, so that way if you find a composer you like, you can go down that, you know, that, down that rabbit hole of, of finding mm-hmm. more. But um, in terms of other resources, there's the Boulanger Initiative, and I'm really lucky. I'm their research coordinator for this summer, so I'm I'm shamelessly self-plugging right now. But uh, they focus primarily on women composers, and um, they've launched their database back in March. And it is not just horn. It is everything under the sun. So if you're interested in orchestral music, um, Mm -hmm. that's a really good place to go because you can search by instrumentation. um, Mm -hmm. You can search... There's, there's a whole bunch of fields, and they're always expanding. I can confirm we're always expanding. I have, I think, 40 works that I have to go review and get put into the database in the next oh, couple okay. days. But, um, you know, so there's lots of things happening right now. And um, is, is they're really doing really, really cool stuff. And then there's Diversify the Stand with Ashley Killam, uh, is the head of that. And she's mm-hmm. another amazing human being on this planet. And um, they do some really, really cool stuff. Like they um, just put out a series of music books that are for younger students and they're written by black composers. And um, and I think it's black and other underrepresented. Comp- no, I can't remember, but um, sorry, Ashley. But, um, the, <laughs> we'll put the link in the notes. It'll be fine. Yeah, thank you. It'll be perfect. And so they're doing amazing, amazing things. Um, I know there's an Instagram account that just started up that's focusing on tuba and euphonium repertoire. Um, oh, okay. I think, uh, I can't remember. You know what? I just pulled it up but um you can edit this part out as i look for it but uh no, no problem they are called tem resource tuba euphonium music resource and they're they're very on the new side but that's going to be a cool thing mm-hmm. um so yeah there's there's tons of places to go so it's just a matter of finding one that feels right to you um I organized yeah. mine by genre so that mm-hmm. it would hopefully be a little less overwhelming. So if you're looking for an unaccompanied horn solo, you can go into that page. And there's, I think, only 40-something works, which is still a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's less than looking at a whole giant list of, of everything. Oh, and, of course, we have to mention Lynn Folk Baird's yep. page as well. She's yep. one of my inspirational sources. So um, that's a whole other website we can you mm-hmm. know plug here. So there's endless places to go find music if you... Yeah, and sometimes it's just fun to get on YouTube or or Spotify or whatever your preferred streaming place is and just kind of, like you said, look for a genre like woodwind quintet or, you know, whatever, and then kind of just find things. And then you kind of start with like, okay, where is it it published? Where do I get the music? And that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, uh, what was the, it was from your article in the newsletter. It was the woodwind, it was the sextet for wind quintet and piano. Oh, um, Louise Ferranc? Yes. Yeah. We ended yes. up programming it this spring because I'd never heard of the piece. And I remember seeing your article and listened to it. And the recording was just dynamite. And it's a cool piece. Oh, so, cool. yeah. Um, 
Thank you for that, oh, by the way. <laughs> no, that's amazing. I mean, one of the things about doing all of this is I don't always um, hear success stories. You know, it's very insular. So I know people are coming to the website and looking at it because I can mm -hmm. see the analytics on my site, but I never find out what's been programmed or who it's been impacted. And so it's it's really nice to hear that, you know, something happened, <laughs> you know, because of what I do. That's really, really cool. <laughs> so, And it's a beautiful piece. Really, yeah, really it's, cool it's, stuff. It's, it's amazing. It's like, you know, late romantic kind of yeah. stuff and and really really well and the horn part is really playable so it's mm -hmm. for anybody that's interested in wind quintet with piano it's we paired it with the the Poulenc sextet oh, of course. on a, on a program mm -hmm. so it was kind of it was kind of nice to have oh, those so on great. there but, she uh, has a nonet as well that um the frost faculty performed oh cool a couple maybe a couple years ago. Um, and that's another really cool piece. And mm -hmm. I really like her music. I've been having so much fun expanding my own musical tastes with all this research. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing, I, I was looking at an album yesterday that was, I was helping build out the Spotify playlist that was all very avant-garde. <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm, I'm working on um, letting myself be more open to that style mm -hmm. right now. And so that's been really fun byproduct of this is like, okay, can I find something enjoyable in something that maybe I wouldn't have gone and listened to on my own? Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's been a lot of fun as well. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, as, as an undergrad, I thought, and this is going to sound, it's good for, for one, it's going to date me because I'm old, but <laughs> when I was an undergrad, I was like, uh, Hinnemus Sonata, it sounds way too modern. I mean, I'm not that old, but I was like, I was not into that stuff i wanted to do strauss and mozart and you know that very typical uninformed undergraduate kind of thing uh i think students today are a lot more hip <laughs> to to that because there's for one there's so many more resources and there's people like you making sure that it gets the recognition that it does and it wasn't until i went to grad school and you know kind of ended up at a place that you know university of wisconsin madison there was a lot of new music going on and it was very well done for one <laughs> that makes a difference in new music if it's kind of if it's not presented very well it doesn't do itself any favors you have to have good performers and dedicated performers mm -hmm. so it's like okay i was in from <laughs> from that moment on and so um to anybody who's got a little bit of anxiety or hesitancy about new music just go for it you know yeah. and yeah it's like anything there will be some that maybe aren't so great, but I think it certainly is outweighed by those that are worth the time, for sure. Well, and this isn't the 60s and 80s anymore, where all new music, and, and that's a huge, horrible generalization, but like the bulk of new music was very um, mathematical and very, you know, not easy <laughs> listening. There's yeah. New music now is anything and everything. You've got people yep. writing gorgeous, melodic, romantic stuff, and then you've got, yeah, you've got the the crazy wild fun mm -hmm. technique stuff so yeah being being scared of the term new music is mm -hmm. you know it, 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 it's a challenge we have to overcome and it's funny you mentioned hindemith because i still don't like any of the hindemith stuff <laughs> so <laughs> all apologies to alone. hindemith estate i know but, yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry yeah it's it, hindemith and schumann they just the adagio and allegro i've said this on several podcasts now adagio and allegro if i could never hear it again play it again that'd be fine <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Schumann. Oh, gosh. But there's so much good music out there. And it's just finding what you like. And that's the beauty, I think, of the world we live in now is where our careers are entirely our own. Um, mm -hmm. There is no one way to be a horn player. And there's no correct way to be a horn player. And I don't think you could have said the same, you know, 50, 60 years ago. There was the mm -hmm. path. And if you didn't follow the path, you know, that was it. And um, now, if you want to just go record solo works for horn in your bedroom and put them on TikTok. You can, 
and you yep. should. Like, I think yep. it's so cool. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I'm all for people just finding what what speaks to them. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, I was I was in school. Let's see, uh, it's been a while more more than more than one decade, more than two decades. So when I was from when I was an undergrad. My my take on things is that, and I had this really kind of weird idea. I I thought to get a college teaching job, you had to have held a full time orchestral position. And thinking back on that, I'm like, that was insane. That's insane to think that the only people who are qualified to be college horn teachers are those that have held full time orchestral playing jobs. And I was like, oh my gosh. And that's just how like naive I was. And, you know, of course, along the way, people like Lynn, she was a few years ahead of me at UW and she was, she's still is an awesome player doing so many things, chamber music, orchestral, but she got that job at Western Michigan university where she still is now. And I was like, Oh, it's possible to get a job like that. And you don't have to have won a position in a big five orchestra. In fact, it doesn't, you know, that's not the case most of the time. And so that's actually really reassuring to hear because that's still a thing. I think that some committees are still looking for. I think it entirely depends on Mm -hmm. the institution, too. Oh, yeah. um, Yeah. Yeah. I don't see myself doing the big five orchestra thing anymore. Now, if you'd asked me when I was in high school, I was like, yeah, I'm going to be principal of the Chicago Symphony, you know, whatever. Um, But uh, yeah, now I'm I'm looking at what I want out of my career. And yes, I love orchestral playing, Mm -hmm. but I don't want that to be the only thing I do. And I feel Mm -hmm. like with um, some of these big groups, it's hard to branch out because you, you have so many commitments, you know, mm-hmm. you're, when you're with the big orchestras, you've got this, 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 you got to do. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, I'm fully anticipating my career taking that alternative path. So it's nice to know that, yeah, it's, it's, it's a thing that you don't have to mm-hmm. do to get, because to get the job you want, which the job mm-hmm. I want is horn professor as well. You know, that's, that's the goal I'm always working towards. And so, mm-hmm. um, which may be happening and I won't spill the beans on that or not, but there's <laughs> things in the works, which is fun. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's non-traditional careers, I think are sometimes the, the more interesting talk about that. It's not mm-hmm. a knock on anybody who's, you know, gone and, and won the big job, but they're fascinating people too. I'm friends with the tuba player who just won LA Phil at age 22. Mm-hmm. Um, cause he was a frost student, you know, and that is the mm-hmm. traditional path, especially for tuba. Mm-hmm. You, you have very limited things you can do. You go. Talk, win the yeah. Job, go. Yeah. Horn, we have it lucky in the horn world. We, you know, oh, yeah. there's five of us in an orchestra. There's only one tuba. <laughs> I don't know how they do it. I, um, my partner's a tuba player and we went to the Baltimore sublist audition a month mm-hmm. ago and there were like 40 something tuba players there yep. for a sublist audition. Yeah. Holy cow. I'm we're very lucky. <laughs> yeah. Well, and as you said, there you know, there are certain institutions, I'm not going to name any names because there's no point, but yeah, there are certain institutions where it's like, okay, you look at the people currently on their faculty, it's like, well, they probably want a person who's done X Y and Z. Yeah, you kind of have to read the room a little bit. But for a lot of college teaching positions these days, the assumption is that, yeah, you're going to be qualified in your subject area, but what else can you do? What else have you done to distinguish yourself? Because it's rare, the jobs that you get to only do the one thing that you want to do mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> to the exclusion of everything else. And I mean, all of my big role models career-wise have been great players and teachers, obviously, but they've also done other things. They've been composers, they've been authors, they've had websites, they've done you know all these different things. So for me rather than like putting all my eggs in one basket, so to speak, it's like, yeah, obviously you want to, 
prioritize your horn playing and your teaching and be as good as you possibly can, get all the experiences you can. But if you have an interest in repertoire or technology or what have you, you know, other things, conducting, theory and composition, whatever, the more hats you can wear, I think that that puts you in good standing in a lot of job situations. That's as qualified an answer as I can, you know, <laughs> qualified <laughs> no, a statement I as I can come up with. <laughs> I completely agree. And I tell all of my students and all my friends this, um, you have to find what makes you unique in, mm-hmm. in a world of hundreds of thousands of amazing musicians. What separates you from somebody else? Everybody can hopefully play their C major scale beautifully, right? right? right. So what's going to make you stand out from somebody else? And like for me, I wanted to make sure I had as many skill sets in my tool belt as possible. So like mm-hmm. um, my advice is always cultivate cultivate your administrative skills. Um, yep. Make sure you can respond to an email efficiently and clearly, you know, with Ooh, the correct Oh my tone. gosh, yeah. Don't get me started on that. Yep, 100%. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. 100%. And, and, and figuring out how to organize yourself is a skill and you can market that skill set, you know, to mm-hmm. a lot of music organizations these days I'm finding are looking for people who are both musicians and administrators mm-hmm. because you get a lot of people in positions of power who are one or the other. And um, if you're too artistic, then there's, there's no practicality. And if you're too practical, then you lose the artistry and there's a mm-hmm. space for all of the above, but somebody who can do both is going to be incredibly marketable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, I, I, I agree with that completely. And I also, it's like sometimes we put creativity in a box, which is seems like an oxymoron. But sometimes people think, well, you can only be creative if you do this in music. It's like no, having a podcast is really creative. It's creative in a different way. Arranging rather than composing original works is creative in a certain way. Actually being organized, lots of people have creative ways to organize. So that would be the other thing because personally, I identified myself pretty early on as like a hard worker, but then maybe I didn't think of myself as the most creative person. And that was something I kind of internalized for a long time, rightly or wrongly. And then along the way, it kind of became more clear that it's like, hey, I have ideas too. They're maybe not like Picasso painting something, but ideas about how to organize things or ways to, you know, look at different repertoire or take repertoire that's not been arranged for a certain group or transcribe it for horn. So I I, I always tell people that because a lot of times we get this idea of, well, people are either creative or they're not. And that's not true. You can develop your creativity. You can expand. You can, it's like a muscle. You can work it mm-hmm. and it'll get better. It's like playing a horn. Creativity yep. is something you have to practice. Yep. If you don't practice it, it will, you know, take a nap. It won't say it'll leave you, but it'll take a nap. <laughs> you know? you yeah, it, it, gets, it gets harder. Yeah, for sure. It, it gets harder. Um, so I, you know, we were talking off mic about um, things that may or may not be happening in your future, but are there some things that you're particularly excited about either with the podcast or performances or things like that coming up? I will say though, this podcast will probably not come out until maybe early fall. I've got, I'm kind of in a good, a good place. I've got a, um, a queue of ones that are kind of ready to come out. I, the summer is really the only time I can do more than one a month. I wish I could be like the juggernauts out there and do one every two weeks or one per week, but that would, I don't think I could do that. That's what I'm doing is I've got one every two weeks. And during the freelance season where March and April is nuts, it was so hard to keep that going, but mm-hmm. I'm, I'm right there with you. I've got four 
queued up in mine right now. So that's mm-hmm. two months of content, which is great. Um, yeah, so that's something that I'm excited about is the episodes are continuing to come out. Um, some really cool composers. I just interviewed Ken Amos up in Boston. He's a oh, I know Ken, composer. yeah. Oh, he's the best. He was so cool. Yeah. Um, we had so much fun. He introduced me to his rep decks. I don't know if you're familiar with these. They're like playing cards with excerpts on them. Yes, I've seen like, those. Yeah. Oh, so cool. You can get them on Amazon. I may or may not have just purchased like five. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> that's really cool. Um, I got to interview Andrea Clearfield. Um, Michelle McQuaid Dewhurst is going to come out next week, which by then okay. this will be, you know, months ago. But um, yeah, there's there's so many cool people I've been talking to and more have agreed to come on. And, and that's a really fun project. Um, I mentioned the playlists. Those are coming up. Um, I am in process of trying to figure out how to put together a book proposal. Okay. Because um, I really want to turn the database into an annotated bibliography. That mm. is a moving target because there's always new works being added, but at least getting something together, I think. Um, right. Like Rick Serafine off at Indiana did that guide to the solo horn repertoire. Mm-hmm. I'm mm-hmm. thinking an equivalent of underrepresented composers would be um, really, really handy. I would I, buy it. I, yep. 100%. Okay, that's great. See that? <laughs> good. See, that's what you need. Somebody, you need somebody to say, yeah, I would use that. Um, I'm a book person. I have five bookshelves in my two-bedroom apartment. Um, they are awful. Uh, so I like having that printed resource um, mm-hmm. so that I'm not staring at a screen all the time. Um, I, you know, that would also potentially lead to an album, trying to get more of these works recorded. Um, that's I, that's a huge project underway, actually, because um, as I'm going through my database, I've been updating it lately a lot mm-hmm. and realizing there are very, very few of these re- works that are actually recorded. That's I would right. say probably 20, yeah. 20%, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Um, and it depends on the genre. There's more woodwind quintets and brass quintets recorded than solo rep, which I think is funny. That um, is interesting. So yeah. It is weird. I don't have a reason for that other than maybe um, people who are in chamber groups maybe get more creative. So we're not always playing Malcolm Arnold over and over. I'm not sure, right. but um, <laughs> you know, no shade to Malcolm Arnold, but you know, it's nice to change it up. Um, so that's something that's going on. Um, I'm also, I have too many projects going as I say this. Um, I'm also starting a YouTube slash TikTok series where I'm going to be breaking down musicology books related to gender and social justice and music education. I've got stacks and stacks of them sitting right here. Like, um, Ooh, Philip Ewell's book on music theory that just came out. Um, Incredible resource. So for people who are not bookworms like me and prefer to devour their content via the internet, Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to be just doing little breakdowns of, of, you know, YouTube will be the longer form. TikTok will be short form, little snippets Mm -hmm. um, to try and get more of these concepts. Like um, Marcia Citron's gender in the musical canon explains how works that we've played for centuries wound up being the works we played for centuries. Mm -hmm. And it is not as simple of a process as you would think. So um, that's coming out soon. Yeah. Lots of, lots of stuff going on, which is great. (laughs) Oh, I'm having good, I'm having good feelings from my, from grad school. Cause I, I, I did my minor in musicology. And so there was, I remember we, we, I still use the Citron in a a class I teach um, to this day. So yeah, there's uh, lots of good content out there. Yeah, that's an incredible book. Um, change that was one of my formative um, reading experiences. I would say was changed my whole perspective on how I view music. It was one another of the inspirations for for represent, um, along with you know Susan McClary. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, you know the, the standard mm-hmm. feminist musicologies at this point. Um, and I was really really lucky that my dissertation for at UM 
my chair was a musicologist, um, mm-hmm. Marisol Quevedo. She focuses on Cuban Cold War music, and she's just absolutely brilliant. And uh, so I got to be a non-musicologist musicologist <laughs> for Same. a while. Yeah, yeah. It's a lot of fun. I didn't do a minor in it because I was like, I don't want to be restricted. And then I proceeded to take entirely musicology courses. So, you know, it's fine. But um, <laughs> we well, you're putting it to good use for sure. Yeah. It's like I said, that history degree led to me being able to write a paper. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, it's yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well, now we have to worry about artificial intelligence and chat GPT. And, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I am not worried about it. Maybe I should be. I'm worried about the, the ramifications of misinformation for sure, mm-hmm. yeah. but I'm not worried about it replacing us. Um, there's something that I think too many people value that are the, the actual human spark. Mm-hmm. rather than something that's false. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I should be more worried about it. But I, I think that we are going to, there's going to be a backlash. There's always a backlash. Um, mm-hmm. I think I just saw an article that they're being sued or investigated or something, ChatPT or whatever the name of it is, is being mm-hmm. investigated by some agency now for bad things. So there's, I am going to keep an eye on it, but yep. <laughs> not let it, not let it haunt me. That's, that's where I'm at with the AI stuff. It's, it's so obvious when, that it can't formulate a real new thought. You know, it's, it's mm-hmm. just regurgitating things that yeah. have been fed into it. Yeah, so. we, we've done some exercises in my, my music history class uh, at the undergraduate level. We, I kind of feel like, well, they're going to figure out that it exists one way or another. Just like there's always been, you know, places that will write an undergraduate research paper for you for a, for a fee. So I kind of see it in the sense of like this it's not necessarily a brand new thing. It's the the capacity for plagiarism and unoriginal content has always been out there. I think I think we can probably use it as a tool and kind of leverage it. I've I've heard of some really creative ways of like using it in class, and then the students are comfortable using it for for the right reasons and using it mm-hmm. ethically. You know, it's kind of like you know a calculator or something. The calculator is never going away. We still need to know our multiplication tables and that sort of thing. But see, um, do we? No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if if it can if it can make your your life a little easier in some respects, mm-hmm. then then I I don't necessarily see it as a problem. Right. I've heard of, course. right. I've heard of people using it as writing prompts to say, okay, here's mm-hmm. an argument this thing made, take it apart and tell us why it's flawed, you know? And I think right. that's a, yeah. a valid use of that kind of tool, but it's, yeah. it's just another tool really. Um, yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely the dark side to that, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And, and I, I had a big conversation with my parents the other day. I was like, Hey, you know, you can't trust everything you read on Facebook. We've got to have a conversation <laughs> about this, but yep. you know, it's, it's, it's you don't have to share every now. random article that's <laughs> out there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, oh, it's it's fun times to be a human being. <laughs> right <now. laughs> well, Katie Beth, thanks so much for taking time out of your schedule to to chat with me today. This has been an awesome conversation. Oh, I appreciate you having me. Like I said, off camp or off mic, it's a uh, weird being on the other end of it. So <laughs> it's kind of fun to, to take off my interviewer hat and put on the interviewee one. <laughs> Well, this has been great. And thank you again. Thanks so much. Take care.